Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Real Talk. It's Lucas here, and I hope that today's episode informs and inspires you to have your own real conversations. As always, today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Trivan, maker of trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at trivan.com. A huge thanks to them for sponsoring the show and making it possible. One other quick note before we get into today's episode is that if you are willing and able, if you could leave a review, preferably a five-star one, on any of the podcast networks or platforms that allow for it, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated as it helps get the word out there and lets people know what we're all about. So with that in mind, on to the episode. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Real Talk Podcast. Uh, another exciting episode for you here. Uh, as always, uh, I'm here as your host, Lucas Hopfler. And uh, today I'm talking to two gentlemen from Dort, Dort University. So we're excited to learn about Dort. Uh, first of all, it's going to be a bit of an interesting, different episode in the sense that uh, we're going to do it in two chunks. So the first portion will be just getting to know Dort, uh, the classes, uh, the university itself, what they all have to offer. And then, um, and then secondarily, we're going to be getting into Professor Bailey's book. Uh, I'll hold it up here for anybody watching on YouTube. This is called Interpreting Your World, Five Lenses for Engaging Theology and Culture. So um, an interesting book, uh, to say the least. And uh, we'll do our best to try to pack it all into the, the time we have today. But honestly, it's a discussion that, that could probably go on for hours. So hopefully it whets your appetite and, and you check out the book. I read it myself. Very worth reading. Um, so with that, I will uh, I'll, I'll flip it over to our first guest to introduce himself. Uh, we have Mr. Eric Tudor over from Dort, and um, Eric is the Director of Emerging Markets. So I don't exactly know what that title means, Eric, but maybe you want to give us a bit of a background as to who you are, what you do, how you came to be involved with Dort, and then uh, we'll move on to Justin after that. Of course, yeah. No, I think I'm still figuring it out myself sometimes, but uh, no, my name is Eric Tudor. Uh, I actually came to Dort as an undergraduate student in 2008. Um, I frankly did not go up in a, a reform circle, don't have a, a Dutch last name either. And so I felt a little bit like a fish out of water at first, uh, but got really bought into the idea of reform theology. Um, the, the Dutch people of Sioux County welcomed me well and uh, really bought into this university. And so I spent four years in undergrad. And then uh, my first job upon graduation actually was the Canadian um, admissions counselor for Dort. Uh, about 10% of our student body comes from Canada. So I spent several years working in Canada, getting to travel from province to province, uh, talking about the university and the benefits of coming to the U.S. for education. Um, and now more recently, my job uh, still has me in the admissions office, but I do increasing amounts of work with the academic programs and uh, a little bit of future casting for where Dort is headed and who are some natural partners for us. Okay, very interesting. Thanks. I'm excited to get into uh, to what all Dorn has to offer. And now, uh, of course, our second guest in the program, uh, Professor Justin Bailey. Um, he's the Associate Professor of Theology over at Dort and uh, has quite a lengthy uh, bio here, so I, I won't even read it all. I'll leave it up to you. How about to, uh, to summarize <laughs> Professor Bailey? Yeah, um, I am, as you said, professor of theology here. I've been here for this is my seventh year. I also am not Dutch um, and don't have a Dutch last name. So I'm also sort of new to um, this part of Iowa and this part of uh, the Christian, um, the Christian reform sort of world. Um, but I am 
a happy, happily reformed Christian. Um, and uh, yeah, also was drawn to it from the outside um, and found it to be a really capacious place to live and, and to work. And um, yeah, and, and love getting getting to teach here. I primarily at this point teach in the core program, which is um, sort of uh, for the students, the program that all students would take. So both for freshmen who are coming in, teaching them biblical foundations, but also for seniors who are leaving and going out sort of uh, into various vocations to help them, especially thinking through um, engaging culture, Christian ethics, um, those sorts of things. Those are, those are the areas where I teach. Okay, very interesting. Well, we will get into um, yeah your work specifically in the book, as I mentioned later on in the show. But for now, we're going to dive into Dort and figure out uh, what's all going on at Dort. So, I think Eric, I'll leave it to you to to give us a broad overview, maybe, and then we can we can hit some specific questions. But do you want to give us just um, yeah kind of the Cole's notes on some of the key programs you have, how many students are at Dort, uh, what's the enrollment process like, um, sports facilities, anything like that. I'll leave it up to you to uh, to sell uh, to sell door for our listeners. No, of course, no. So we are a Reformed Christian University uh, located in beautiful Northwest Iowa. Uh, about fifteen hundred and thirty undergraduate students. Uh, so we're a fully residential campus. All those undergraduate students will live on campus, and we're quite traditional in terms of you will spend your time on campus and hear the programs that we offer. Uh, we also offer a good host of um, graduate programs exclusively online. Uh, we have about an additional 400 some students in those programs, in particular things like Master of Social Work, Master of Education, uh, Public Administration. Um, traditional programs, our five largest ones include education, business, nursing, um, agriculture, engineering, uh, so a good um, range there. Uh, but we have really creative programs, uh, lots of two-year technical degrees in particular in engineering uh, for those who want to perhaps go off and become heavy machinery certified. Um, also to your business degrees for students who want to become event planners, construction managers, things of that nature. Um, students come from us from a variety of places. I shared that I served my first couple of years as a Canadian admissions counselor. Like I shared about 10% of our student body does come from Canada. An additional 10% uh, annually comes from other countries um, across the world. We actually think of Canadians as domestic, believe it or not, in some ways, because of how many students do come uh, from Canada. Um, but uh, 30 plus additional countries besides the U.S. and Canada represented uh, nearly with the exception of, I think, believe Quebec this year. We have every Canadian um, province on campus, 40 U.S. states. The average student comes to Dort uh, from about 500 miles away. So I guess 800 kilometers uh, from the university. <laughs> um, primary sports, uh, we have a, a wide variety of varsity athletics um, here in the U.S. Of course, we do scholarship for those sports. Things ranging from uh, very traditional ones here in the U.S. like football and soccer um, and golf and baseball and cross country and track and field um, to things that I would say Canada has helped us influence, like having a hockey team, having a men's and women's volleyball team, uh, things of that nature as well. So, um, yeah, a variety of things there. Uh, very active student life, as you can imagine, when the average student comes from 800 kilometers from campus, uh, when they're engaging not only in their academic studies, but they're also involved in co-curriculars. Uh, this becomes a, a very active hub um, for the student experience, not only academically, but socially, relationally, and spiritually, of course. Right on. Well, that's good to hear you guys have the most uh, important thing, which would be a hockey team as well. So uh, that's <laughs> that'll be very uh, endearing to all of our Canadian listeners, for sure. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, okay, so 
that was that was a great overview. I appreciate that a lot. Um, when it comes to the area of just being a reformed uh, institution, a Christian institution, but then specifically reformed, uh, how does that how does that impact and how does that influence uh, everyday life at Dort? What what makes Dort uh, unique in, in that uh, respect? Of course, yeah. So if I can go way back to 1938, there was another private school that had failed in the state of Iowa. And as the team members were frankly talking about what went wrong there, what could be, do, could be done better, we or they outlined what they considered to be a founder's vision of if another college were to ever launch, this is what it would have to be. And they talked about they talked about a reformed Christian university that did not append um, the studies onto the Christian life, but it was deeply integrated into every aspect of the university experience. And so when Dort um, ultimately was launched in 1955, initially as a teacher education school, exclusively to teach and train Christian educators, um, that was at the forefront of how do we think about the entire university experience through a reform lens, understanding every student as an office bearer and as someone then who has expectation and responsibility to breathe in with their gifts and their God-given talents um, into this, this community experience. And so Obviously, over the last, well, since 1955, uh, we've um, diversified in programs. Um, we've certainly added a variety of different community experiences, but always with that ethos that ultimately it has to begin with, how do we help shape and train Christians for all aspects of contemporary life? Our mission statement talks about a commitment to that reform perspective and understanding that we're not just preparing students to go off and to be educators and engineers and biologists and botanists, yes, those things are great, but the holistic individual understanding that you're also likely going to be called to be a spouse, to be called to be a, pres uh, a parent, uh, to be an elder in your church, to help lead the t-ball team, and what does it look like to give an entire life of service back to God's kingdom, understanding our engagement and responsibility within that. And so um, that is who we are, that is who we've always been, and it's been fun for me uh, to now spend 10 years in this role and to hear Dort graduates from 60 years ago talk about your education experience and my educational experience, they were the same. Philosophically and, and perspectively, we were the same, although there are certainly more things happening. There are more programs at Dort's, but we can be interconnected that way. And certainly my story um, is that of a non-traditional student in many ways that I did not know what reform met. I hadn't met anyone with a Dutch last name before coming to Dort, but I was really uh, excited by a place so committed to that perspective, and increasingly so. That is the story of Dort students who perhaps come from outside of Dort's specific uh, flavor of Christianity, but really excited by a place that's committed to those roots and a place that's really giving life, um, giving opportunities for students into the future as well. Fantastic. Yeah, it's 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 a, just exciting to hear you talk about it, honestly. I hadn't even thought about it too much in terms of there is this, this place that's very committed to reformed uh, Form of thought, reform education that exists, and you have a wide variety of people involved there. Uh, as you say, both of you come from from different backgrounds, other than Dutch, and uh, it's very cool. So I'm I'm happy to be talking to you about that. One uh, area of of concern we've heard about this before, and this relates to kind of the core, um, yeah, core reform thought uh, is central to our identity is the issue of creation. So I wanted to bring that up with you guys, uh, specifically if uh, and Justin, you can feel free to weigh in on this too. But I'll go to Eric first here. Uh, what is the position uh, at the university on the issue of creation? And then how is it, uh, what is the discussion like on campus? Is there a healthy debate there? Is there a firm position? Uh, wh where does Dort sit on the issue of 16 creation? 
Yeah, really good. In any issue, I think we begin from all, we're going to teach you how to think well about the issue in front of you. And we're always going to say that regardless of what you think, God is placed at the center of that, right? So within um, considerations of creation, evolution, there are certain flavors that would remove God from the center of that. And that is absolutely not Dort. Dort is always going to say that centrally located is going to be um, God creating all things and God centrally um, orchestrating every aspect of what happens in front of us. Certainly, there are going to be students who may come from a variety of different understandings of create creation at Dort, and we're going to create a dialogical place where we want students to encounter those different ideas. We expect many of our students to go off to graduate school where they may encounter um, various varieties that probably are going to pull God out of the middle. So we want to be able to equip students to engage uh, to respond to that and to think really well about what they do believe um, and understand that ultimately God is orchestrating all these things. Things like naturalistic evolution uh, would stand in opposition to Dort's because it does not place God as central um, in the development of, of the world that we live in today. Justin, things you would share there as well? No, that's a good answer. And I think, first of all, what always comes to mind, and I often have um, campus visitors who come and have similar concerns and questions I always start by saying that um, we are committed to treating the world as a gift of a loving God, and we seek to see ourselves as creatures who are always dependent on God's goodness for everything. And starting with that posture of of reverence and dependence uh, to God when we talk about creation. I, I would also maybe add um, to what Eric has said that yeah, we know that there is a range of Christian positions. We're certainly not trying to deconstruct anyone who um, holds the six-day position. I'd say that's probably the majority position of the students who come in uh, that are in my classes are coming from that perspective. Uh, and whatever position students hold, we're hoping that they will uh, evaluate claims in light of scripture, in community. Uh, I'd say there's a healthy uh, amount of discussion though as well, that, that it's not that you're sort of expected to fit into one belief where you don't belong, but there is a healthy sense of, of being able to um, say, what is the text actually teaching? The text of Genesis teaching, what does it compel us to believe um, in, in the course of our in the course of our discipleship as we reckon with what is the dominant theory in, in some of the some of the sciences? How do we as Christians live faithfully in that space um, uh, in submission to scripture and in community with others? Right. Well, thanks for that. It's helpful to get clarity on that issue, as it is uh, certainly an important one for, for us as Christians, of course. Um, so would it, would it be fair to say, listening to all of that, then, uh, you mentioned the student body. Primarily, that is the view of the uh, the view of the majority of the students at Dort is one of 60 creation. Would you say the same is true of the faculty, or would it be more like the inverse? I am not actually sure. Um when it comes to the view of the whole faculty, you know, the hundred faculty that we have here. Um, so it, it'd be hard for me to, to sort of make a statistic. Uh, I, I am sort of given even the statement about the students as sort of an anecdote based on my own experience teaching um, students and, and hearing how they come at Genesis and that that's the place that they're coming from uh, for the most part. Um, yeah, I, I would say that there there is not... Um, there is no sort of advocate for, um, there's no sense that we are trying to advocate for or embrace um, some sort of theistic evolutionary paradigm, um, 
you know, you may have old earth, old earth creationists uh, who are also here um, thinking about the literary aspects of the text, but I, I don't even know that it's enough of a live issue that I could even give you a sort of, this is how it breaks down percentage wise. Um, I think it's really, there's a sense of healthy, um, yeah, just discussion, discussion around it. Um, but I, I would say that, yeah, among the faculty, it, it, it would be more unclear to me uh, where they land. My guess is that a lot of the faculty um, would would probably lean towards something like that. Uh, but I'm not sure. I'm really not sure um, where, if we were to pull the faculty, where they would land on it. Yeah. Maybe as a starting point, uh, there's an expectation that every staff and faculty member at Dort University go through uh, a series of interviews throughout the process um, alongside our board to understand um, deeply the, the beliefs of, of the employee. It's also an expectation that we all attend a reformed uh, congregation that we're actively participating in that. And so um, certainly from a, a standpoint of where are our um, staff and faculty being filled, where are they learning, where are they engaging, um, they're beginning um, not only in the classroom, but also where they're worshiping from a reformed perspective on these on these subjects. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, fair enough. No, I, and I wouldn't expect an exact uh, stat. It was more just looking for a general feeling in terms of where you think the faculty is at. But yeah, so I guess to summarize it, I think it would be fair to say that there is a debate within the realm of Christianity in terms of older, six-day, but you, but Dort is committed at least to saying like God is at the center of this. Um, we we start with God and then we we work out from there. So okay, well thanks guys. I, I appreciate the, the clarity on that issue. Uh, a couple other little things to hit on on just Dort itself, and then we'll we'll move into the book later on. Um, for Canadians, of course, a lot of our audience, uh, probably about eighty percent, is Canadian. Um, what are the barriers for Canadians coming to Dort? I'm thinking primarily, obviously, of cost. Um, are there any sort of bursaries or, or scholarships or anything to be aware of in that regard? Uh, Eric, if you want to speak to that next. Yeah, no, really good. Yeah, this is taking me back to my early days in admissions counselor, trying to think about the uh, the opportunities or the advantage of the Dort University education. But certainly there are um, distinctions, differences between the Canadian system and, and the university or American system that can be surprising or maybe initially even off-putting to students, uh, particularly I think of sticker prices. Um, Often Canadian schools will use a relatively flat rate model where you will see a sticker price and you will pay pretty close to that. Um, I think particularly to the provincial universities, but also some of the Christian universities um, in the United States, most colleges use what's considered to be a discount model. So you may see a significantly larger price tag at an American university versus a Canadian university, um, but there's opportunity for enormous academic scholarship upon that. So um, just to contextualize that, Dort this upcoming year, um, tuition will be around thirty-five dollars or $36,000 per year. Room and board, food and housing will be an additional ten dollars to $12,000 on top of that. So you may see from an American university like Dort price tags from forty dollars to $60,000. However, um, there are enormous academic scholarships and athletic scholarships uh, that can offer some of those things. So particularly for Canadians, of course, qualifying for an academic scholarship is a really great way, place to begin. And these can range from anywhere from you know $6,000 to $15,000 per year for a student uh, who have great marks in high school. Um, in addition to that, uh, we, like I mentioned, are, we offer varsity athletics. About one third of our students participate in those. And those scholarships too can run from $3,000 up to well over $10,000 per year. We also have additional grants for 
um, things like institutional grants. So uh, we call the Founders Grant. If a student went to a Christian high school, um, there's $1,000 for that. If they have alumni who went to Dort, there's opportunities for that. Um, if they, um, well, in fact, actually amongst most provinces in Canada, we have donors living in those places that would like to see more students from Ontario or Alberta or for British Columbia come door to door. So they offer scholarships directly for those students. We know that very top of mind for a lot of Canadians right now is the exchange rate. Um, it does not play well into the favor of Canadians. And so we have a specific grants that we use to offput the exchange rate for Canadians um, as they consider universities in, in the United States. Um, at 10% of our student body, it's a very significant portion. And so we've created systems to um, help those students transition really well. So certainly in an academic or sorry, a, a financial standpoint, we're thinking about, okay, how do we offset some of these differences? We're, Canadian, we're comparing against Canadian provincial universities who have price tags of five, six, seven thousand dollars compared to our, you know, thirty-five thousand dollars plus for tuition. Um, those things we're thinking well about, but academically as well, um, there's often some pretty significant, compelling um, competitive advantages to consider a, a state's university. Here at Dort, in particular, uh, we believe a four-year degree should take four years or less. Uh, in fact, uh, we're seeing a growing number of our students. Actually, more students graduate in three or three and a half years than those who are taking four or four and a half or four and a half or five or five and a half or even six years in many Canadian systems to complete a degree. I was talking to a couple of Canadian graduates recently, particularly in the areas of education and nursing, who were talking about five or six year tracks to complete their degrees, whereas they came to the States, they studied at Doris, they completed a degree in four years and were teaching in Canada within four or four and a half years and although, yes, there is a price tag up front that maybe costs more for these students, the opportunity cost of I'm working versus I'm paying for college quickly outweighed any of those financial differences of them choosing to stay uh, in the country. So um, academically, programmatically, we're often looking at, okay, what are the distinctions? What are the differentiators between what a Canadian system may require versus a U.S. system? And how are we helping a Canadian student to accumulate those things if they desire to go back to the country? Or if they're choosing to stay in the U.S., whether they're a dual citizen or a Canadian citizen, how can we begin to work through a visa process? Or if they're a dual citizen, obviously, it's, it's a very seamless process. Um, sorry, process. I forget I'm talking to a Canadian audience now. Um, but regardless, uh, we're thinking holistically about not only can I afford this place, but how do I make that transition back to Canada upon uh, my graduation as well? Okay, very good. Now you just got me thinking about how I say the word process or process. So <laughs> I'll be uh, up all night thinking about that. But okay, that's very helpful. So yeah, bottom line, it's expensive, but there are trade-offs. We had quicker education. There's lots of help available for bursaries and scholarships and whatnot. So um, it's not as uh, as black and white in terms of you know, whatever it is, eight, $9,000 here versus 40, 50 there. There's uh, some other complicating factors to to consider. So Okay, very good. Uh, I, I think we're going to end off with just more of a philosophical question about university itself. So I'll use myself as an example for this. So I'm 25 years old. I'm interested in, and I have been since I was in high school, history and theology and philosophy, kind of the arts, right? And, and probably could have gone on the, on the university track, but opted to do just a two-year college diploma. And I got into business and, and uh, have a good thing going there now. But um, I still like doing obviously stuff like this in the podcast, talking about these topics on the side. And uh, for me, when I was at that age, I thought, you know what, even just at Canadian university prices, the calculation wasn't worth it. Largely, 
also uh, to do with the, the woke movement we've seen over the past, you know, call it six to eight years or whatnot. And the quality, at least in my opinion, uh, of university education has, has gone down dramatically. At least that is the case locally here with any of the, uh, the major public uh, universities. So for young people today, looking at going to university, especially if they're going to go to a place like Dort and they're going to drop $40,000, $50,000 a year, why is it worth going to university uh, where, you know, there are a lot of resources online? I understand the community, I understand the sports and the scholarships and whatnot. But um, yeah, maybe I'll go to Eric first. And then if, if Justin wants to follow up as well on this, what's what's the real pitch for university today? Because it seems to be like there are some good options elsewhere and the cost may not be worth it in the end. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a paramount question, right? And it's one that is not unique to the U.S. or Canada, and we wrestle through this ourselves in many ways, right? And yeah, to affirm, too, uh, that we talk about in our mission, going to all aspects of contemporary life. Um, Dort is one place that certainly we're going to uphold um, the goodness of pursuing a four-year degree and the outcomes associated there. We also have great two-year technical degrees as well, and so we do understand that we need to have Christians engaged in every aspect of contemporary life and every vocation for that matter. Um from a broadly why Christian university education or why university education in, all, in general, um, one answer the world is going to quickly reply is it's still the best financial return on investment statistically an individual can make. Um, here at Dort, we recently calculated this, or we had an outside firm actually calculate, and they said that the investment that student experiences at Dort, they can expect a 13% year-over-year um, appreciation of their money as, re as a result of that initial investment. So 13%, at least uh, amongst the American markets, uh, that certainly beats the average American market. It makes sense from a financial standpoint, but more so than that, right? We we want to place a learning laboratory where students can rest with really big world um, challenges. And, you know, I was just meeting with some students this morning, we were talking about this major versus this major, and certainly um, there's good merit in, in, in wrestling through what we study um, and what we ultimately end up doing, but it's the worldview that we help you equip you with um, that challenges students, prepares them for what they see when they turn on the news in the morning, the conversation they have in the grocery store. Um, we want to prepare students well we, uh, to future-proof you really to be able to engage in what's happening 15 years down the road, to engage you for a market shift. We want to not give you the technical skills just for today, but also the soft skills that as the market is shifting, as uh, policies and perspectives are shifting. How do we remain grounded? How do we continue to return to scripture to find truth? And how does our vocation flow out of all of that? And so I would say, um, you know, foundationally for DORP, it's equipping you with a worldview that uh, prepares you to, to, to return to truth in every aspect and every stage of your life, uh, equips you um, to optimize the God-given abilities that you have and to pursue the careers that you believe he's, he's calling you towards. And ultimately, to be able to live in community with Christians for two or four years and get really prepared for whatever is going to happen uh, upon graduation. But there's certainly uh, some good economic rationale uh, that we could dive into. But I think that for me and for the university, that's where we would begin. Uh, but I'd be curious to know, Justin, from a faculty perspective, um, how you see this. Yeah, no, it's a good it's a good pitch, Eric. I feel like I want to sign up now after listening to it. Um but uh, yeah, I'll just start by saying that there's lots of different um, vocations and lots of different ways that God calls people. And so I don't want to sort of minimize um, those other ways. Um, but of course, I do think that there is incredible value in going to a university like Dort um, and maybe an even greater necessity 
um, in this day and age than at other times. I think part of the thing that we face is this sort of, and again, this is not a pushback against giving numbers of return on investment, but sort of a focus that that happens sometimes on getting it as fast as possible, doing it as fast as possible, as efficiently as possible, just getting it done. You know, and so with chat GPT and things like that, professors are are running into this, right? Why why read the book if I can just ask Chat GPT to, to write the essay? And the story that I always tell students is when I was I'm I'm 42 now, but when I was 30, I wanted to do something to challenge myself um upon turning 30. And so I signed up for this expedition to to do this hike in Peru uh, to Machu Picchu. And um it was this crazy, I had to get a personal trainer, you know, to, so that I didn't die on the seven miles of stairs. And, um, and it still almost killed me, you know, but I sort of got to the top of, of this trail and saw it, saw it for the first time and felt this incredible rush of satisfaction arriving there. And then I realized when I got there that I could have just taken the train and the bus to the top, but that experience would have been incredibly different because, um, it required me that the, the slow way going on foot, the inefficient way required me to become a different sort of person along the way. It required me to build certain types of relationships with those who are walking with me. And, um, and so I wouldn't like, so if I went now, I would take the bus and the train, but, but that particular experience was something I wouldn't trade for the faster way. And I think one of the things that we're trying to do here at door is take the slow way. Um, the, you might argue less efficient way, the more formative way, the way that is really oriented towards preparing students for the unknown and the unknowable, um, for jobs that don't exist yet, for challenges that don't exist yet, for ethical ethical challenges that they haven't even considered yet. And it requires an attention to, um, to the world, and it requires an attention to scripture, and it requires an attention to culture um, that I worry increasingly when people are sort of outsourcing that to the internet and just sort of finding whatever they want, that the internet tends to the soundbite, the gotcha, you know, the quick, the quick, um, the quick answer. It doesn't incline itself towards um, slow thinking, reading long books, wrestling with ideas, learning how to, to be wrong in public, to disagree with, with, with positions. And so that would be my pitch for, for going to not any university, of course not, but a Christian university that takes its vocation um, and its theology incredibly seriously, um, that there is value to slowing down and taking time to read the whole book and taking time to, you know, um, and not just letting ChatGPT do that for you. Now, of course, um, smart people can find their way towards um, towards that that form of life too without university, but but the internet doesn't incline itself to that. Modern life doesn't incline itself to that. Um, smartphones do not incline us towards that. And so one thing about being at a university, it is the sort of liminal experience, this sort of long trek, this four day or four year or two year or whatever trek on foot, you know, so that when you get to the end, you've sort of become a different person. Than you would have if you just took the train um, and the bus. So that that's my long answer to uh, uh, to why to why take the slow way or why take the the less efficient way or the more expensive way. Mm -hmm. No, I respect that. It's it teaches you how to think, right? That's that's kind of the goal at the end of the day: how to be a critical thinker. So, and that certainly takes time. And and I agree with your critique about yeah the internet age. People, you if you don't go to university to learn how to become a critical thinker, if if you didn't learn that in high school 
you have to be very intentional about doing that and you have to find the right resources and, and be tuned into the right people online because otherwise yeah it's it is challenging i mean these things the algorithms are, are built to just grab your attention with the next thing and you're it's a it's an uphill battle so despite what i said earlier i i do i do see some good arguments there as well so it's a it's a choice everyone has to make and uh and yeah dort is a is a great alternative so all right well i think that's that's pretty much about it for our introduction section on dort uh eric do you want to give a final a final pitch for dort uh plug any socials or contact channels or anything like that of course, no, just beginning at dort.edu, I can maybe give you a few more answers. Uh, if you've got a student, a uh, grade 11, grade 12 student who'd like to learn more about the university, uh, we do pay for a good portion of students travel down to come check us out, uh, for you to come along to experience university for itself, kick the tires, to meet the faculty, uh, to ask the question you desire to ask. But uh, we've got a Canadian admissions counselor from Manitoba. Uh, who does a phenomenal job of understanding Canadian perspective and engaging a student and helping them through the process. Um, but no, we'd, we'd love to uh, have that opportunity to, to engage your listeners. Fantastic. Alrighty. Well, I guess uh, we'll sign you off for now, Eric. Thanks for joining us and for your time. It's much appreciated. Thank you. Take care. Alrighty. Goodbye. Okay. So Professor Bailey, we got to jump into your book here now. So, uh, oh. This is, I'm excited. I'm excited. And I read this when I was camping over the weekends, a couple weekends ago. I was like, oh, well, I didn't know what to expect. I got into it. Okay. This is really getting my brain going and uh, it making me think and, and slow down, you know? So um, <laughs> kudos, kudos to you on that. I took, uh, I have been to Machu Picchu and I took the train and the bus. So maybe next time I should walk up the hill and, and take your place. <laughs> I would uh, do that if I was there now, but uh, yeah, there is yeah. a place for the long, the long trip. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I I remember passing a few of those people on the way up. I was like, oh, okay, that's a that's a long walk. Yeah. So kudos <laughs> to you for doing that. Alrighty, so yeah, uh, for the listeners here, this is I mean that's not the world's thickest book, but it's it's a couple hundred pages for sure. It's right around just under two, I think. Um, so it's gonna be tricky to pack it all into about the hour we have left. So I think what we're gonna do is we'll try to get through it all, and we'll just hit it a little quicker. And then hopefully your the appetites of listeners are, are whetted and and they can dig in further by picking up a copy themselves. So uh, let's let's start talking about um, interpreting your world. I think to start it off, give a, if you want to give the listeners kind of the thesis of the book. What were you trying to do? And then maybe explain the five lenses for engaging theology and uh, and culture. Yeah, interpreting your world is in a sense about. Um... Uh, theology and culture and how they come together. And those are two things that everybody is already invested in. So one of the things we like to say here is everyone's a theologian. That's also the title of an R.C. Sproul book, Everyone's a Theologian, which is a way of saying that everybody has a theology, an implicit theology. It might not be good, might not be coherent, but everyone has a sense of what is most real and what matters most. Um, and then culture is also something that we are always already engaged in. So we're always, I mean, we're wearing clothes, we're speaking a language, right? You know, we live in a particular time and place and are formed by, uh, cultural forces. And so how do these two things come together, our theology and culture? And, and what is it that scripture and the gospel calls us to sort of, uh, to do with, with both? And so, um, theology, the particular burden of it is to listen to the voice that tells us what we could not have told ourselves, which is the voice of revelation, which is the voice of, uh, the voice of God, and to allow that voice to reorient our world uh, and the way that 
you know, that we have been taught or trained or discipled by the cultural context in which we found ourselves. And what we'll find is that in every cultural setting, there's going to be some things that we can affirm as, as uh, marks of God's goodness to us in, in, in common grace. But there's also going to be things that we have to um, we have to critique that the gospel will always challenge. And so what I'm trying to do in this book is to, in some sense, complicate the conversation to say it's actually quite complicated to put these two together in a responsible way but also in another way to simplify the conversation and to say, hey, here are five handholds or here's five big questions that every single person is asking. Uh, because we live in God's world and because these things are carved on our souls, all of us are looking for meaning, for example. All of us are trying to, to wonder what to do with power. Uh, all of us have a ethical sense of, of what it means to be a good human. All of us are living with some sort of religious energy in terms of how do we cope with the anxieties of life and the certainty of death. Um, and then all of us are trying to live a life that is in some way delightful, that, that is uh, beautiful and generative. And so I sort of see these as these magnetic questions. There's the Dutch theologian J.H. Bavink who talked about magnetic points uh, that sort of pull us towards them. And these are questions that all of us are always asking. And they're questions that the that culture is always asking. And then um, theology has some really has, has has answers for these questions as well. Right. And that reorients the way that, that we look. And so that that's what the five lenses are. And I'm not saying that these are the only five lenses that you can look through. But I'm saying these are five lenses that are not the same thing. And the, the more we are able to look like in a kaleidoscopic way through these lenses, uh, the, the better, the more clarity we will have in terms of what's actually going on um, in culture and how theology, how Christian theology is able to renew and, um, and help us live with integrity and fidelity in, in, in the face of culture. Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely felt that uh, reading your book that uh, it, it kind of opened a world to me that I hadn't really thought about too much. So it immediately became more complicated. And then you proceeded to provide some lenses and, and kind of the apparatus to, to view it, to, to simplify it. So again, that did come through. So, uh, all right. So uh, let's go to the meaning uh, dimension first, and we'll just kind of work through it as you have it in your book there. Uh, you offer a few helpful analogies for, uh, for culture and the gospel. Just looking here, virus, immune system, bubble, web, infection, host. Do you want to walk us through maybe just a few of those and kind of explain how those analogies uh, work out? Yeah, well, maybe I'll just talk about virus and immune system. So um, I was trained in seminary to relate to both scripture, but also culture as a text. Obviously, scripture is a text um, that you exegete, that you get the meaning out of, right? Rather than reading your meaning into it, uh, you're seeking to say, what is this text saying? And then uh, I was I was sort of trained to relate to culture the same way as a text, as a world and work of meaning in which we sort of were trying to understand what is what does this mean? What are we what are we getting out of this? Um, and I really appreciate that. I really appreciate uh, that analogy and the way that that sort of orients us towards the world. The only problem with it, though, is that it's sort of if you think of a text, it's sort of distinct from me. I can pick it up, put it down. It's sort of remote. It's over there. Whereas culture really isn't like that, right? I don't get to sort of selectively decide whether or not I'm going to be involved in making culture today. I'm making culture by, by virtue of being a human being living in God's world. And so I was trying to find something that kind of captured the way that culture is contagious, that it spreads, you know? And so I, I both because it was during the coronavirus thing, um, I thought of a virus, right? And, um, and the way that things go viral, 
right? We use that language of, of a particular thing in popular culture, perhaps going viral. It's like, oh, that actually captures um, the way that culture is contagious and spreads and takes over things. Um, it's much less out of our control, right? We sort of find ourselves in a world in which certain things have gone viral and maybe we wish they weren't viral. Um, certain things, certain ideas um, are widespread and endemic to, to modern life. And then I began thinking, you know, it actually helps also to think of culture not just as a virus. So if you think of little bits of culture, like a movie or a podcast as an individual carrier of culture, a virus, when I they all come together, it's almost more like an immune system. So a worldview, so maybe this is another way of thinking of a worldview, functions sort of like as an immune system, as a dynamic system of discernment, right? And so I'll hear certain things that somebody says, or maybe something online. And it's almost like the immune system that I have is like blocking invaders and accepting things that, that, I, that I perceive to be safe. And so I thought that's actually a pretty good way to capture the way that we relate to the world is we have these cultural immune systems that allow certain things in and don't allow other things in, which is why I think explains a bit of why we have this sort of allergic reaction to some things that people say, especially when they come from another, you know, maybe political party or another sports team or something like that. There's this almost, it's not just a matter of thinking things, right? It's almost this immune system reaction that we have of, of anger, right? Or, um, or, or contempt, uh, that we have for someone else. And I thought that that idea of, well, what's happening there is is less I'm encountering a meaning that I don't agree with, and it's more I'm encountering something that is potentially destabilizing uh, my sense of of health, of of what's good for me and what's good for what's good for my community. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so then later on in the chapter, you talk this idea of holiness and how it relates mm -hmm. to to an immune system. So, there's kind of yeah. two postures there, right? There's, there's, we need to protect this. It is holy or we have, oh no, like we, like holiness, like by the grace of God is something that exists within the church. Right. And we, we are called to go out and share that. So can you explain a little bit more how you, how you talked about that in the book in terms of the two postures there and how it yeah. actually, how, how it's a real like point where culture meets theology and how you think about it will actually affect yeah. you in your daily life. Yeah, it's great. I notice you have C.S. Lewis behind you. And so he writes in Mere Christianity about the good infection of the gospel, which really, you know, connected with, with what I was trying to do as well, because you have sort of this idea of culture as virus, and now you have the idea of the gospel as virus, except for it's a good virus, right? It's a virus that actually heals everything that it touches, right? And so that made me think of the way that, you know, if you think of Jesus um, in the gospels, he has the highest ethical standards imaginable, right? He he calls people to follow him in discipleship. And he says, you know, it's not enough for, for you just not um, not to commit adultery. I also say to you, you know, um, and, and he raises the bar consistently. And yet everyone feels safe with him. All, all of these sinners, right? Tax collectors, prostitutes feel like they're able to be to be with him. And it's different than the, the religious leaders who said, well, if you are, clean, you can be with us. Jesus was like, be with me and you'll become clean, right? And so this the sense of holiness that Jesus had was different than the holiness of the religious leaders. The religious leaders very much were trying to protect their perception of holiness, of what was clean and unclean. Uh, and so to keep to keep the outsiders away from it, right? Keep the keep the um the people who don't sort of fit within our religious system away from it. And Jesus changed that trajectory 
so that it was holiness for him was every place I go, I bring God's kingdom. I, I God's kingdom is present. And, and so there was this amazing kind of dynamic of Jesus being uh, emanating holiness, right? And yet that holiness was something powerful to be unleashed, something that as he went into every space, um, there was space for misfits, there was grace for failure, there was patience for the process. It wasn't just a matter of the way that the religious leaders uh, of, of the first century uh, treated holiness. And I still haven't figured that out, exactly what that looks like in my everyday life, to treat holiness as something powerful to be unleashed. But it does seem like Jesus is calling us to be the sort of people that um, that don't feel fear um, when it comes to encountering culture, because we believe that the gospel, this thing that we have, is actually stronger um, and actually has the power to heal our cultural spaces if we allow it to, if we can enter in in the right way. And so that's what I was trying to write about in that in that chapter, um, you know, as we sort of think about Christian communities fearing contamination. And I think again, this is this is a tension that we live in. In I here in Northwest Iowa, students often talk about a Christian bubble that we're in. And we talked about, okay, well, there's different kinds of bubbles, aren't there? So yeah, this is a bubble in some sense, but there's like the bubble of boot camp, right? So if you're at boot camp, that's a necessary bubble that is preparing you to go out and and do 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 something, right? Um, and that's different than a bubble that's sort of like a country club bubble, right? A country club bubble is like, well, you can only come in if you pass all of our standards, right? So there's a there's sort of a a bubble that is oriented towards the world, and there's a bubble that's oriented towards itself. And I think that God calls us as Christians, if we are going to be in some ways a bubble or a thick community, a community that takes discipleship seriously, that has a really clear vision of who we're called to be, has high standards, uh, that also that that has to be a community that's oriented towards outsiders. It's oriented towards going into all the world, right? And and into every sphere of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... I like what you're saying here, and it makes me think. But immediately, what I what comes to mind when you give the example of Christ being with the the prostitutes and the tax collectors is and emanating that that holiness is that He's Christ, and you know He has the holiness to emanate. And you know, by the grace of God, so do we to an extent. But you know, we're also still simple human beings. And if I think, oh man, like if I put myself, yeah, you, you don't want to put yourself in an environment that will, will lead you in, mm. to temptation, right? So then. How do you, how do you make sense of that? How do you balance that? Like, no. I guess maybe maybe this kind of leads into the last question on this section. But you talked, you mentioned a thick community. If you can unpack that term a little bit, well, yeah, you have the cost of discipleship, but you also be hospitable. Um, how do we kind of there's there's kind of two two uh, poles here to kind of that are competing, and how do we balance those? How do we actually play that out in in real life? What does that look like? Yeah, so I always tell my students that um, we need to go deep as deep in devotion as we go wide in engagement. Uh, and so to the degree that you are engaging, especially spaces that are potentially hostile to faith or compromising to faith or filled with temptations, the depth of devotion has to correspond to that. And certainly there, you know, this is not a one size fits all sort of thing, right? Um, you know, someone who struggles with alcoholism, I'm gonna give them different counsel, you know, than I might give to somebody who doesn't struggle with alcoholism when it comes to being in particular kinds of environments. Um, but the basic principle here is that, yes, of course, um, we are not Christ, but as you said, with Christ, um, in Christ, powered by the Holy Spirit, we are called to do the sorts of things, to, to fulfill the sort, to go to the sorts of places, to be his hands and feet, 
as best we can. And so a thick community would be a community that is anchored deeply in Christ and in the gospel and in the scripture so that they know who they are and they know who they're called to be uh, so that their identity is not at stake if they are rejected uh, or if they're, if they fail, um, even if they're, even if they're made to suffer or, or killed, right? Uh, because the security is found in Christ, right? And being connected to Christ and being able to, and being bearing witness to his kingdom. Um, and so that's, what I would say, as far as, um, yeah, to encourage Christians not to abandon, um, be, because we, we live in a wasteland, to not be afraid to, to plant gardens, right, in wastelands and to irrigate deserts, um, because that's what we're called to do. We And we are not called to manage the results of that, right? We're not called to, um, to be successful in the eyes of the world necessarily, uh, but we are called to be faithful and, and to do the best we can to create um, spaces that are, are like the ones that we see in the gospels uh, where, um, you know, as I said, there's a clear vision of who we're called to be, but there's space for misfits, there's grace for failure, there's patience with the process. Um, and I think that that, um, that is the sort of community when we can cultivate that sort of community um, that has both a clear sense of calling of who we are meant to be, who we're called to be, but also that's full of grace and, and patience um, is the sort of community that I think people are longing for, um, in which case it becomes a community in which holiness is something powerful that is unleashed and not just something fragile to be protected. Mm hmm. Yeah, you know, it seems like this is certainly something that needs to be done in community. Oh, of course, it starts sure. with the individual, but then, right, we need to, I think that's that's also, on, alongside of regular prayer and scripture and the devotional life, but to, to be accountable to other Christians, uh, and we all come with our different mindsets and perspectives and whatnot, so but we can use that to either keep each other accountable in either direction, right, if, if you're going too far and being um yeah just putting yourself in an environment that is uh full of temptation versus being too reserved and, and not sharing that holiness and, and trying to protect it too much right so it's got to be yeah it's got to be in community okay see we're already right on my schedule which i figured we would do uh because there's so much to talk about so let's let's hit the power yeah. dimension next uh you got right into and you talked a lot about critical critical theories i should say critical theory maybe in this chapter um People, if they're familiar with that, are going to be familiar with that, with um, obviously kind of in the more Marxist strain in today's today's world and the, and the postmodern strain. Um, is there anything uh, worth pulling out of uh, this idea of critical theory and, and deconstruction? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, we'll start with so that. let me just start by saying, please read the chapter. If you, <laughs> you know, this is obviously a pretty fraught discussion. Read the footnotes, you know, all, all of that stuff. Um the and then and even that it's the chapter that i am asked about the most uh and also the chapter that was the hardest to write and 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 i'm probably the most i'm the least satisfied with um and and yet it's also the one that people want to talk about all the time it's because this is this is what um is all around us right so um i'll also say that one of the other ways that i sort of got at these five lenses is i sort of looked at how does cultural analysis work outside the walls of the church? And so the first chapter you might say is the approach of a cultural anthropologist. So the discipline of anthropology or even sociology. The third chapter is looking through the discipline of ethics. 
um, you know, sort of a philosophical lens. Religious studies is the fourth chapter. Aesthetics is the is the fifth chapter. And this is the chapter that that takes the tool of critical theory. And so, as a tool, I think critical theory does have something that we can learn from. Uh, in the same way that um, I think that a hammer is really valuable for a particular purpose, or a screwdriver is valuable for a particular purpose, then the problem is, of course, when that's the only tool you have. It's not as valuable uh, for everything. Uh, and that's also one of the reasons why it's only one of five chapters in this book. So the power dimension, I, I was trying to get to it as quickly as I could because I know that's what people are interested in. But by placing it among four other lenses, I'm trying to say, we can't just say that everything is about power. So power exists, power imbalance exists. And I think that's what critical theory helps us sort of diagnose or see that something's not right people are being taken advantage of um the society is set up in structures that push some people more towards the center and more other people towards the outside um and that's just that that's just a descriptive truth that you sort of see the world set up in that in a particular way we can see that in the scripture as well you think of um uh i think of ecclesiastes 4 you know where the the teacher is sort of talking about the the poor and the oppressors and how they have power on their side. So we're just sort of describing the world that is full of injustice. And what critical theory does help us do is get a sense that something is wrong um, and that um, power has a way of taking particular meanings that people have and coercing others into them. So that's the first thing I would say about it is I, I feel like there's something we can learn from the critical theory is a diagnostic tool. Um, now, again, uh, it's going to be limited when it comes to building something, I think. Um, so it the tool of critical theory, the hammer of critical theory is pretty good at taking things apart. Uh, I don't know it's great at putting things back together. Um, and so I always say to students too, like in my uh, biblical study methods class, uh, if you know, we're, we, we're going to examine what we believe, but if this class ends and it's like an engine taken apart and on the floor of the garage, then we have failed to do what a, what you're meant to do with a car, right? Because the purpose is not to take everything apart. It's to go somewhere, right? It's to, to get in the car and take a road trip, right? And so I think that's where critical theory struggles. Um, it's really good at um, saying that something's wrong and identifying uh, the way that power has been used, especially you know, human sinfulness, idolatry uh, leads to injustice always in the prophets. Whenever there's idolatry, there's going to be injustice. Whenever there's injustice, there's idolatry. And so I think in that sense, it, it can help us as Christians get a sense that something's not right. Um, and where the critical theory likes to speak about ideology critique, Christians would speak about idolatry critique, right? And so in that case, our solution is going to be pretty profoundly different. Um, but as far as both being able to say, yeah, there is definitely something wrong here. Um, and power, power has a big, has a lot to do with that. Um, I think, I think there is something we can learn from it. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the analogy of a, a tool is good. It's, it's, it's almost like um, it's a jackhammer or a sledgehammer, right? You can't really use it to build so much. It's more just for tearing down. I think that's a helpful way to think about it. Okay. You just, you just touched on my next question there, which has to do with injustice and idolatry. Can you break down how, how that connection is, is formed and how we see it time? Yeah, time so idolatry is when we look to something else to give us what only God can give us. And when we give to something else, that which belongs to God alone. 
usually we make idols of good things, right? So patriotism is a good thing, right? Uh, when that becomes only my country is right, you know, and um, and that outstrips other allegiances, including maybe my allegiance to Christianity, um, then I know that I have taken something good, right? Which is, you know, a love for my community, for my country, and I've turned it into an idol um, that now I'm, I'm using to, um, to harm other image bearers. And idolatry always obscures God and it always obscures our neighbor so that we're not able to love God with all our heart and we're not able to love our neighbors ourselves. So that's what I mean. If you just read the prophets, the two primary things that the Hebrew prophets are diagnosing and the people of God are idolatry and injustice and also in the surrounding nations, but primarily they're turned towards the people of God to say, uh, it's because you've abandoned worship of, of the true God that now all the rest of your life is out of, out of whack. Um, and so it's the restoration of worship that goes hand in hand with the restoration of, of order or of justice. And those two things have to come together. And, um, and so that's why I think that what you see outside the walls of the church, you know, in something like uh, what's called cancel culture is a sort of iconoclasm, right? Um, pulling down of things from their pedestals saying, you know, you should not be in a prominent place anymore. And so that's interesting to me as a, as a reformed Christian, right? Who has a, you know, our, my tradition has a history of iconoclasm of a religious sort. And so we have a lot to say about iconoclasm, a lot of thoughts about idolatry and iconoclasm. And so again, I see, I think you see here an example of a, a, a culture that's ostensibly irreligious, that's trying to be secular and yet cannot get away from the religious impulse, right? Both to idolize something, but then also to, to destroy the idol. Um, you know, so whether that becomes celebrity worship and then, you know, the celebrity gets pulled off the pedestal and, and that's part of being human. We're made to worship, right? We're created to worship and, but we're created to worship God. And as GK Chesterton says, when you stop worshiping God, it's not that you worship nothing, you worship everything or you worship anything, you know, you worship really dumb things to worship. And, um, and so I think a big part of what we're trying to do as Christians is to, um, identify idols identify so you know in critical theory they're trying to identify ideologies which is a sort of narratives that obscure the truth um and we as christians are trying to identify idolatries uh not just outside the walls of the church though we're also supposed to be doing that in our own hearts calvin says that the human heart is an idol factory we're always looking for something besides god to sort of give our allegiance to and so i think that it's a good way of doing self-examination uh, for, for ourselves and for our communities is to ask, I mean, are there, are there some idolatries that, that are leading to, to injustice, not just outside the church, but also inside it? And I think it also allows us to be prophetic outside the church, right? To say um, that this is not right, uh, that injustice is not right. And to say that there is an order to things. There, there's a way that it's meant to be. And if when God is in his proper place, uh, injustice is, is, not, is not allowed to continue. Um, the kingdom of God is justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so whenever God's kingdom is present, there should be more justice, right? And there should be, um, yeah, the pursuit of that. And so I think that's where I think that Christians have a real opportunity to speak with a distinctive voice in the midst of um, all of the furor about critical theory and all the furor about deconstruction, because we have a lot of unique contributions to make that I think sometimes the way that the conversation goes is we just don't enter into it or we just 
avoid it um, or we just debunk it or we say, oh, that's not what we do. Uh, when in reality, we actually have the best resources um, to do it in a responsible way if, if we were to um, if we were to take them seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just uh, cancellation uh, versus complication that you kind of break down in the book there. Yeah, I think uh, yeah that is true. We often just sit on the sidelines, and uh, if we don't, yeah, I don't know. Would would you say it's would it be fair to characterize it as like uh, redeeming the culture in some way by getting involved in complicating, like quote unquote, complicating the conversation to give a, a Christian perspective? No, I think or that's am I, am I, I think I that's right. About that yeah. Incorrectly? I think just yeah. even participating, uh, being present, we don't need to be in control, but being present and speaking in a distinctively Christian voice. And, you know, that's the, that's the thing that I would hope is that, that, that people would be able to see that what Christians are offering cannot be easily um, fit into any particular political party, right? It, it brings a critique of all of us, of, of all of our hearts um, and humbles all of us with the gospel. So if you are a Christian and you're starting to feel proud at how right you are, you know, then you maybe haven't understood grace, right? That grace is a gift and not your achievement. And I think that that's the place, if Christians can come from a place of, of recognizing that they've received grace, they've received a gift, and then come in with um, that posture rather than a posture of defensiveness and achievement. I think that 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 posture itself allows us to enter in and complicate things. Um, you know, just being a faithful Christian who doesn't fit the stereotypes that the culture sometimes makes of us is complication. Is an iconoclasm of complication, right? Um, you know, when we lived in Los Angeles, uh, there was a coworker who said to my wife, she's like, he said, you are unlike any Christian I've ever met. And really he hadn't met any Christians. Uh, but he had a particular picture of what Christians were supposed to be like. Um, and so now he's meeting someone whose very presence and testimony is a complication of, of the, of the narrative, you know, of this, of the sort of standard story that you hear about what a Christian is like. So I think that's, that's the sort of iconoclasm that we're meant to do most of the time. So I say, you know, Jesus did flip the tables, um, at least once, um, but more often he sat at them and ask penetrating questions. He was willing to sit with the religious leaders who were judging him, right? And uh, who only invited him to test him. Uh, they were not there in good faith, but he still sat down at the table. So, you know, we talked about how Jesus sits down with the tax collectors and and sinners. He also sits, sits with the people who invite him in, in not good faith, right? And is willing to sit down and endure their judgment and, and endure, um, their hostility, um, but he sits at the table and he eats with them. And I think that that's, that's the posture of complication, I think, uh, rather than, you know, there, there might be a time to flip the table, um, but the danger with flipping the table or the danger with cancel the iconoclasm of cancellation is uh, nature abhors a vacuum and we look for something else to put in its place, right? And so I think that's what you see a lot of times in uh, secular cancel culture is something gets pulled down and well, well who's going to stand on the pedestal now why don't we stand on the pedestal you know we we are the ones who are now are the the virtuous you know the 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 ones who who everybody ought to listen to and look up to and so i think that's um one of the things that the gospel does is it humbles us so that none of us will stand on the pedestal um uh because the only one who's worthy of that is god
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if it's if it's not uh, completely broken, try to fix it instead of throw it away. Which is a comparison I kind of just thought of right now in terms of we do this with people and ideas, and we also do it with things nowadays too, right? Like not many, not many products yeah. are built to last. Which sounds like a crotchety <laughs> old man thing to say, but it, yeah. it actually is true. Like it's just that's how business works. Like we want repeat customers. It's gonna break down after five ten years. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and I, and I think and this might get so, into something right. we're gonna talk about a bit later, but um, yeah, I definitely don't think that everything is redeemable you know i think that there there are definitely things that that ought to be abandoned oh within within culture something so maybe i could say this there are some things that should be canceled right um it's not complication with everything yeah uh there are things that we should avoid there are some things that we should have nothing to do with um in culture but i also think that part of what our witness is is not just sort of determining what to do with somebody else's thing that they've made but also us making things ourselves, right? Whether that's creating businesses or creating communities um, that are different, right? Or churches or schools, you know, that are distinct, hospitable to, to others, but are just really distinct. And that's the way of criticizing by creating. Um, so that, you know, if you are, and this is some of the problem with some of the culture war rhetoric, that when you're in the mindset of always being at war, uh, it's just really exhausting, right? Uh, but before we were warriors, we were gardeners. Um, and so what is the thing that God has entrusted to you that you're able to kind of bring beauty out of? What Where, where does the garden that you're trying to plant? That's the way I encourage people to think. Um, again, not that there isn't a place for the metaphors of culture war and resistance, you know, and, and sort of the wrestling match that sometimes happen. I just think that if those are the only metaphors that you have for engagement with culture, that you're going to end up under a fog of war, um, you're going to end up exhausted. You're going to end up feeling always under attack. And just to remember that the primary vocation as humans is not warrior, but gardener, and that we're called to sort of care and cultivate the earth. And so that's why I mentioned this quote by Nancy Piercy about um, planting gardens in, in the wasteland. Um, or, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about irrigating imaginations that are desiccated. Um, and I think that that is um, another big part of the way that we do the iconoclasm of complication is we create beautiful things, uh, faithful things, um, life-giving things and, and places. And that's itself is um, a way that we confront the way that power has been misused uh, by ourselves or by others is by creating something faithful, a faithful institution now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if your if your business stands in stark contrast to other businesses in your in your industry or your arena, that's that's uh, creating by or critiquing by creating, just doing something like that, or your art or or anything, and which which kind of dips into the the aesthetic dimension, which we'll hit a bit later. But I think well, let's keep moving along here. We'll hit the ethical dimension. Uh, you you talk a bit about Jonathan Haidt in uh, in this chapter three, the, the ethical dimension. He has this moral foundations theory. Uh, do you want to lay that out? Uh, Kind of look at the, the six contrasting mm. holes there and then how uh, how you talk about that in, yeah in so i'll just say again um read that chapter or read jonathan height righteous mind i think that's a really valuable book um and the basic idea behind mm -hmm. moral foundations theory is that um height argues that there are particular moral intuitions that obtain across culture uh, he identifies six moral intuitions uh, things like care, fairness, sanctity, degree, you know, there's these sort of po polarities. I couldn't list them all off the top of my head, but they are right there in the chapter. And um, and basically argues that a lot of times where we feel like uh, 
uh, it's a war of good against evil, right? We're the good people, they're the evil people. He says, well, it's what you actually find often is competing conceptions of the good. So one moral intuition against another moral intuition, right? So whether a particular understanding of care of, for victims or care for the marginalized uh, or, or fairness over against a particular intuition of equality, right? Um, well, that's not fair, right? To give them special treatment, right? And so those are both moral intuitions um, that sometimes come into conflict. And um, one of the things that comes out of moral intuition or moral foundations theory, and one of the things that I sort of critique in that chapter is the sense that uh, morality is in many ways a matter of satisfying the scrutiny of others, of, of our community, right? So um, the reason why I behave is because I want to belong. And so what I'm doing many times when I am acting in a moral way is signaling to my community that I am one of you, right? Um, and so this is the way that he, as a non, non-believer, he's not a believer, he's a, a psychologist, a research psychologist, and it's done all of this really interesting study of conceptions of morality and I don't think it can, it commits us to be, I mean, I'm certainly not a moral relativist, but it does sort of let us know that a lot of times where you have these really loud discussions in culture about um, who's who's right, right? Who's a good person? Um, who's on the right side of history? Um, that what you have is one moral tuish, intuition that's being set against another moral intuition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. I I did read that book a couple of years ago, actually, uh, pre-pandemic, and it was very helpful going in through that time. I found because, yeah, you you see the care versus harm, and the liberty versus yeah. oppression, and even loyalty versus betrayal, like all those kind of come into play. And I mean, again, like we're not moral relativists. Like we do believe in scripture. There is a firm foundation, but it's a useful uh, theory if you have a foundation to work from, because you could see if. Basically, you can see situations that arise in culture very often, and, and even in the church in, in occasion too, where Christians of good faith can disagree because they have different uh, points of view on what, what the primary good would be in this circumstance, which are foreign from their basis of, of scripture, but then it, it comes to the lens of each and every human being, which is, is, is obviously going to be a bit different and they'll place emphasis on, mm-hmm. on certain factors. Um, okay, so that that was a helpful helpful um, discussion there. Uh, just just to kind of tie that off, I guess. So, do you want to speak a bit more about how being answerable to God ultimately is actually how is is the reason why? Um, yeah, is the reason why we are trying to seek righteousness, and at least that is that's the ideal, that's yeah. the standard. Hopefully, yeah. we live up to that. But often, we 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 are human, and we will fall into these patterns that Hyde describes mm-hmm. in terms of. It's yeah, it's almost virtue signaling in a way, which which sounds like a dirty word to say, like in, in the church, and you wouldn't think of yourself like at least I don't think of myself as doing that. That seems like oh, that's kind of a you know people do that yeah. on Twitter sort of thing. But I think if we if we take a moment of self reflection to see like okay, like yes, this is what I like, mm-hmm. this is what I do in public, but then what what is my heart telling? Right. So I think um, do you want to speak to how we can stand on on guard against this in our lives? And how can we, how being answerable to God, the importance yeah. of that ultimately determining how we carry out. Yeah, it's approach. interesting. So part of what, what um, Hyde is 
doing, and this is again, I think where there's sort of, um, it's again, I agree. It's so valuable. I've learned so much from, from Jonathan Haidt and from this book. Uh, but the place where as a Christian, I sort of now say, well, this is where I sort of get off, off the bus is, is that it is a very much, uh, sort of horizontal or imminent, imminentized account of, of ethics where I'm really only answerable to the people around me and seeking to, yeah, seeking to be satisfying what they think. And then in that case, I would never be able to get outside the morality of my own culture, right? Um, so whatever culture I'm in, because they set the morale, my moral compass, and I'm trying to satisfy my culture, I would never be able to get outside of that, or I would never have a way to critique the morality of my culture. And so by having um, scripture that comes from the outside of every culture, right, even as it makes itself intelligible within every culture, it gives us a way that we can critique the majority moral views, right? So there's a famous experiment where um, they were they were trying to see, uh, they, they said, hey, you're going to push this button, you're going to shock this patient. And, um, and they're going to feel a little shock. And then we're going to turn up the thing and we're going to sh keep shocking them. And they were trying to see how, how much would people inflict pain on another human being if they were told by an authority figure to do it. And so this is sort of out of the Holocaust and, you know, German, German camp guards who just said, well, I was ordered to do it just following orders. And they're trying to see is what's the threshold of a person who will just obey their community or obey an authority figure. And they found with these two particular people who stopped at a certain point um, is that they had a religious faith, right? And in one case, I think one was a sort of a Dutch reformed Christian. Um, and, and it was the sense that there is someone to whom I am answerable that outranks any human authority, that outranks my community, right? Anyone who's telling me what I ought to do. And it was because they felt that they were answerable to God, ultimately, that they drew a line, right? That they felt that there was a line that culture did not draw for them, that their community did not draw for them, and that they were ultimately answerable to God. And I think that, I mean, this is really the heart of righteousness as articulated in the Gospels, right? Jesus says um, that we move towards sort of an obscurity and a hiddenness uh, rather than being like the religious leaders who pray out in public and sort of signal their virtue, is that our faith is one in which we live before the Lord, before we live for the Lord, right? So we realize that we are answerable to God first. Um, and this allows us now to have something that uh, outstrips the judgments of our culture. Um, let me see if there's one other thing I want to say about that. Um, yeah, so there's this, this phrase I like called um, to be rather than to appear, right? And I think that our culture encourages us to appear and it doesn't matter what you are, what, what you want to be. And I think that we're called as Christians to be rather than to appear, to have the truths that we claim be true of us, right? And um, and so I think that that's, that's this idea that if it is the case, yes, that we behave or we act in a moral way or we pursue righteousness because we want to belong, I say yes, but the most important person to whom we belong is God. Right, my greatest comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, and life and in death, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. And so, it is belonging that drives behaving, my my pursuit of righteousness. But it's fundamentally belonging to God um, before it's belonging to, you know, myself or or um, my community. Mm -hmm. For sure. 
Okay, so that kind of covers the, the ethical side of things. We'll uh, move into number four, which is the religious dimension. Um, I'm going to combine kind of two questions here. But first of all, what does it mean for an experience to be religious? And maybe touch on what we mean when we say religious. And then why do certain pieces of culture, like art, music, or like a sporting event, touches and quote religious yeah, ways. so i love this question uh so one of the things that i notice with my students when i'm teaching in class right now on christianity and popular culture and my students will say things like i watch that sports team religiously and i stopped I, one just said that the other day and i said i stopped and I said well why didn't you say i watch them regularly right what does it communicate that you use the word religiously and almost always they'll, they'll say yeah no religiously is the right word because it it notes a level of concern, how important it is to me. It notes a level of consistency. It orders my life, right? I never miss a game. I never miss a Sunday, you know, in the same way that you don't miss church on Sunday, people don't miss watching a football, American football game on, on Sunday. Um, it also might be that somebody has something like that, that they treat religiously and that it um, creates a sense of connection to other people. So if you sort of think about going to a concert or going to a big sport, a, a hockey game, you know, so that you're, you're in Canada. So a hockey, you know, a hockey match. Um, and, uh, and the way that you feel like you're part of something larger than yourself, right. That you're transcending your own individual concerns, whatever they are. And that that's sort of been lost in being connected to something bigger than yourself. So that, that's, a, that could be a religious experience for some. Now, not everybody might not describe it that way. But for people who try to be irreligious, it's the closest that you come to something like a religious experience. And I would say too, that we are, um, because um, we are religious beings from the bottom of our feet to the sole of our, to the top of our heads, uh, we are always looking for things to invest with religious energy. And sometimes the things we invest with religious energy are trivial, um, like sports. Sometimes the things we, we invest with religious uh, uh, energy are not trivial you know, and like our political process, right? We can, we can invest a political party almost like a religion, right? We can, we can treat it like a religion. Um, and, and so I, I want to pay attention to that. I want to pay attention to the way that treating something religiously intensifies things. Um, it makes it seem like it's, it's more significant than it might first seem. Um, and it gives us this sort of intent, it intensifies our devotion. It intensifies um, the way that we we live with that thing. And I yeah, I just want to help people see that it's not just traditional religion, right? Whatever, you know, if, if you're of a particular traditional religious faith, but even people who are irreligious still live religiously and, um, and form communities, right? So that's the thing. It's not enough to just cheer for a team. You are now the member of the church of that team, right? Of, the, of that sort of, there's a community that forms up around it. And so it's almost like, um, by trying to not be religious, we have now invested all of these ordinary things with religious energy and have religious religious experiences um, outside the walls of the church um, all the time. And then also positively, I'd say that there, there's something I think right about that. I think we live in a world in which uh, it is full of meaning uh, and full of grace. And so uh, I don't think we should be surprised that people who are trying to avoid God end up um, experiencing, you know, grace at the birth of a child, right? Um, I, I saw a study not long ago that, that said something like um, atheists tend to be single men, 
Um, and and that there's something about having a child that makes you question your atheism. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't know if, if that's true across the board, but you know, something about that experience uh, as, as someone who has two children, um, it's like a religious experience, right? It, it's this, this amazing, amazing thing that's being given to you. And life is full of all of these moments of what I would call grace. Um, and, and I think that people who are not, you know, Christian or not, don't have religious language for it would still feel like it's religious. There's something like a religious thing happening here, even if I don't have uh, a God to give credit to it for. And I think too, you know, this is where the GK Chesterton quote, the lonely moment of the atheist where um, you feel gratitude and have no one to thank, right? Um, it's sort of suge it's suggestive yeah. of, of the fact that, you know, perhaps that gratitude you feel at the birth of the child or at the sunset or at seeing Machu Picchu, right? After a four-day hike uh, is uh, meant to be directed towards something, uh, to someone, uh, in fact. Yeah. So what is, is it common grace then in those experiences? Like I, I'm thinking, well, for sure. So uh, my wife and I, we just, we had our first child. She's five months now, I guess. But I, so I remember this experience mm. uh, vividly still. And it is, it's a weird it's just weird as there's nothing like it. And yeah, you do get that sense of gratitude. Like, wow, this is, this is the life process. This is how humans go into the world. Crazy. This is, I was there once like, and, and there's, there's moments in life. Like you say, I, I think my mind doesn't use it right away. When you just, you just hear a song and just like the first couple of notes and you're like, oh, you get the shivers. And like, what is that? Like, is that, is that, was that common grace? Is that to point us to, to God? Is that what that is? Yeah. So you probably know there's all sorts of arguments over what to call something like that and whether we ought to call grace uh, something that isn't directly related to salvation, uh, the salvation of a soul. Um, but I have no problem calling it common grace, at least in the common sense uh, uh, approach of saying, if I feel gratitude, uh, I feel gratitude to a gift. I feel gratitude towards grace. And so uh, if we take grace in that kind of very broad sense of saying, you know, grace is any sort of undeserved gift um, that that you receive in this world. Uh, I think of Paul in, in Acts 14, where he's he's he says, the way that he provided you with rain and the way he provided you with consistent seasons, what else is that but grace? You know, in, in some sense, um, you know, being a, a Reformed person, uh, having a pretty robust doctrine of sin uh, and the pervasiveness of sin um, total depravity uh, inclines me to anytime I encounter goodness uh, or beauty in the world to, to say, what else could that be? But the grace, the grace of God, the goodness of God uh, towards people that don't, don't deserve it, including myself. Um, yeah. I think that also it's important to say that it's not enough to have those experiences, right? Um, they need to be oriented towards, uh, towards Christ and we often, just as often, long for God and also long to be away from God and 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 reach for God and run from God, you know, at the same time, um, in in those in those moments. But I do think that moments like that, um, you know, I saw an article not long ago that said uh, you feel the same way at a concert as you do in a worship service. Therefore, what you're feeling in the worship service isn't real. I thought, okay. But you could also argue the other way that maybe there's something happening at the concert, you know, uh, maybe, maybe there is actually grace that is sort of breaking through in the concert. Um, and you don't have to just debunk everything as, as emotional manipulation. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, maybe maybe the worship service is a higher yeah. form of that, and it's it's yeah, the 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 concert points you towards that. Okay, um, well, just to kind of to put a to put a bow on the religious dimension here. So we've been talking a lot about religion, religious, uh, this idea of true religion. Uh, there's a critique of religion that you mentioned in this chapter that is just a community-based project and that it just helps foster feelings of togetherness. Um, how do we combat that critique as Christians? We believe that Christ is the only way to salvation. This is not just some pet project we do to, to keep busy and build community. So how do we how do we combat that critique? And then uh, also going forward into into how we live our lives uh, to have that directional discernment to uh, to know that something if it's just religious for the sake of this togetherness, this belonging versus true. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so there is a debate also within Christ Christian circles about whether we should call Christianity a religion. Um, you know, sometimes people say, well, it's a relationship, not a religion. Uh, it's also, it also fits the profile of a religion though. Um, it happens to be a religion though of revelation. Um, so if we think about religion in the sense of a human project, as you've described, uh, that is not enough. Um, because if it was something we did, then we could boast about it, right? Uh, we, we could take pride in our achievement. And what the gospel does is comes in from the outside as a critique of all religion, of all human impulse to, uh, to boast, to achieve for itself, to, to say that something we have is not a gift. Um, and so um, true religion is something that we never could have discovered on our own, that we never would have put together on our own. Um, it has to come from the outside as a gift. And, um, and that's why, again, this, as the, the apostle writes, no one can boast, right? It's grace. And when it's grace, that means you don't get to boast. Um, you get to be thankful and, and live a life of gratitude because it is a gift. Um, I think another way that you can sort of distinguish between what's going on is, um, you know, Jesus, when he's present, I think gathers a motley crew, gathers a crowd of people that um, maybe wouldn't normally be together, right? So it can't be reduced. So I, I sort of think I'm, I'm going to give a talk next week to 500 freshmen about what is Christianity. And one of the, you know, uh, points I'm trying to make is it doesn't just look one way. It doesn't just look the way it looks in this part of the world, but there are people all over the globe for whom Christian, for Christ has fit the key of their heart, right? And, and they have found him beautiful and believable and compelling and true, right? And so the fact that it's not just people who are of my particular cultural group, right? Um, but that it cuts across cultural groups, cuts across rich and poor, it cuts across um, all sorts of special interests. Um, that this is this is one of the ways that we find um, that it's a gift of grace and not something that that only certain people can achieve, only one particular cultural group can achieve. Um, now you also asked a question about directional discernment. So each chapter has a practice in it, um, and the practice for the religion chapter, the religious dimension chapter, is directional discernment, which again is um, something that I'm sort of drawing from this missiologist J. H. Bavink. Um, who's a Dutch missionary to Indonesia and um, scholar of religions and psychology and um, part of the reform tradition. And, and he writes about um, direction, directional discernment. And it's this idea of asking, he said, when you, when you're with a group of people, ask 
what are they doing in, inwardly with God? Um, what direction are they moving, right? And and the thing is, is within any group of people or even within any cultural artifact, there's going to be multiple directions probably happening at the same time. So there's going to be things that are sort of, they're being drawn towards God. Um, and there's going to be things where they're avoiding God, right? And so directional discernment is trying to say like, what direction is this pulling me in? What, you know, who who is this encouraging us to become? Those are the sorts of questions that we ask when we say directional discernment. Um, and is it has it been confronted with true religion in the face of Jesus Christ, right? Which is not our achievement, but the gift that has come to us um, through grace. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well said. No, that, that helps clarify things for me. All right, so we're here, number five, the fifth dimension. This one uh, is written in the book. Uh, it's probably the trickiest one to to define and to write about, maybe mm-hmm. because it's so um, it's so nebulous, it's so out there, it's so abstract. Um, can you talk about the aesthetic dimension and maybe define it, maybe uh, comparing it to the previous yeah. four? How is it different? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, if you think about the meaning dimension as the one that helps us connect with the world, feel secure and stable in the world. If you think about the power dimension as one that recognizes um, or, or asks, do I have choices or is somebody else choosing for me? Um, where do I exist in relationship to the center of culture? Am I more on the outskirts or I'm in closer to this, closer uh, to the middle? If you think of the ethical dimension as the one that asks, um, what does it mean to be a good human? Where are the moral lines? How do we form a moral community, a good community? If you think about the religious dimension as one in which you're trying to cope with the anxieties of life and the certainty of death and connect to something bigger than yourself, the aesthetic dimension is the one where there's all sorts of things that you do in culture because you want to, um, just for the, as I say in the chapter, just for the heaven of it. Um, now, it also might be, um, you know, in a fallen world that there's lots of things that we do just for the hell of it. Right. And I use that language uh, really intentionally. Uh, hell is this sort of place of, of autonomy and abandonment. Right. Um, and there's all sorts of ways that humanity tries to live um, apart from God. And the result is hell, uh, hell on earth, so to speak. And, um, and so that means our desires are oriented towards things that are destroying us and other people. Um, and so the aesthetic dimension is the one that captures this sort of delight and desire. Um, what are the things that we delight in? What are the things that we desire? Um, and so at the base level, there's lots of things like um, do a cultural analysis of building a sandcastle on the beach or do a cultural analysis of blowing bubbles with your kids. Why do we do those things? Well, because we want to right? It's not necessarily that there's this deeper meaning in building a sandcastle or blowing bubbles. We do it just for the joy and pleasure that's involved in doing it. And so you're right that the aesthetic dimension is the hardest to sort of wrap your head around because as soon as you sort of describe it, it's like you betrayed it. This is the dimension where you have art, right? You, you've named music. There's something about music that like captures you at the very beginning. And, and if I were to try to say, well, let me, let me tell you exactly what that is. Then you'd say, no, nah, it doesn't really capture it, right? Like that's that's the aesthetic dimension, right? It's it's that sense that there's something that's grabbing you. There's something that is bringing you delight and and awakening your desire or your longing in that moment that is difficult to name, um, and that's that's the the aesthetic dimension of culture. And 
and I have it last um, for two reasons. Uh, one reason is because I think it is uh, the hardest to theorize about or the hardest to describe. Um, and then I also have it last because I think it's the one that is most connected to eschatology and most connected to heaven and hell, um, as I've already described. And I think that, um, yeah, in, in many ways, uh, some of the reasons why we enjoy playing with our kids, right? What does that accomplish, right? Um, not much. Uh, in some sense, you say, oh, that was a waste of time playing with Legos for four hours with my son, you know, but it, but it wasn't, right? Because there's a value that cannot be reduced to accomplishment. And so that's what I'm trying to say is there's all sorts of things that we do in culture and things that we enjoy in culture for no other reason than it brings us joy. Now, um, that might be disordered. So we might be finding aesthetic delight and desire in things that, again, are poisonous to our souls. Um, and we need that, we need to be healed, right? We need, we need sanctification. We need to have our desires shifted and, and, and healed and changed. And we need the things that we delight in to be things that are truly delightful. Uh, but that's sort of why, that's where I, I kind of start with um, the artistic, you know, the artistic dimension of, of life. And also just that, that dimension of, you know, why do you whistle? Why you, wh wh I've been humming the Star Wars theme all day for some reason. And I don't know why. It's like, why am I humming that theme? Oh, there's something about it that sort of is bringing me pleasure, you know? And there's all sorts of things in our cultural life that we do. And I'm wanting to think about those things too, in relationship to God. Um, and think that there there is some sense in which the joy that you find in simple pleasures like uh, like whistling while you work or singing a song as you as you walk around or um, building playing with your kids um, that suggests something about what life is meant to be and what heaven uh, what what ultimate reality is like um, that the joy this is the joy so kingdom of God is, is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And uh, the aesthetic dimension is the dimension of joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really liked how you put that in the chapter. I, when I was reading this, I thought, ah, I don't know about this chapter. This is always a tough one. Like, I don't know if I like this. And then I actually found it to be, I think, probably oh, my favorite one in the book because it, it gets you thinking about, yeah, the things that are really hard to put a finger on. And I, at least I like to do that. It's, it's, it's my it's favorite chapter too. If I and can I have think, a favorite chapter, I, it's the one that was the most fun to write. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you, when you, when you try to put your finger on it, you're seeing almost like these little windows yep. of heaven, like the little, the little beauty and the goodness that is, is on it's the very, earth. Like you say, if you're, if you're whistling or, or you're enjoying yeah. a good song or, or whatnot, there's yeah all these little windows into the divine in some way. And it's just, it's very small, but it's just, just a, it's pointing towards, I think the, the new heaven yep. and, and the new earth. Now you talked about, uh, and, and you kind of allude to this a little bit too. Uh, there's, there's good and there's bad aesthetic escapes. Um, and I'm wondering, um, if you can talk a bit more about that because, well, we'll, we'll get into it yeah. a little more, but to just talk about yeah. the, the, so the escape, escape uh, discussion sort of connects to something, uh, that was written by J.R.R. Tolkien. So the author of Lord of the Rings, and he wrote this essay called on fairy stories or on fairy tales, where he talks about, you know, people sort of fault him for liking fairy tales, right? Or for writing something like Lord of the Rings. Like, isn't that a waste of time? You know, why why are you going to spend time in fantastic worlds? And certainly people can get lost in that sort of thing. But he says, what makes an escape good or bad is what you're escaping from and what you're escaping to, 
right? So, you know, if you're in a prisoner of war camp, I mean, there's a movie called The Great Escape, right? Um, uh, of escaping from a prisoner of war camp. Um, you know, if you're, if, if you're unjustly in, you know, uh, Shawshank Redemption, right? There's, there's movies about escape that valorize those escapes because of what you're escaping from and what you're escaping to. And so what we want to think about is not necessarily should I escape, but what am I escaping from and what am I escaping to? Uh, if it's a bad escape, this would be more like what he calls desertion, where a person has a vocation or a post and they leave, right? They, they leave their post and they, they don't do the thing that they're called. They don't do their duty. They don't do what they're called to do. And certainly if aesthetic escapes are keeping you from the duties that you have as, as a Christian, as, as a father, as a son, as a brother, as a sister, as a worker, um, then this is a bad escape, right? Because it's making you desert your primary responsibilities, the loves that God has called you to steward. Uh, but there is a real sense in which, like Tolkien is trying to say, that by escaping into these sort of imaginative worlds, we actually are healing our sense of sanity because we live in this very dehumanizing world that tell us that you know, that tells us all sorts of lies all the time about who we are and what the world is. And, you know, it's just nuts and bolts. There's no meaning. Any meaning is the meaning you give to it. And then you immerse yourself in Narnia or, you know, Middle Earth. And you're like, oh, wow, this is like a, a world full of meaning and full of full of beauty. And, and the goal there is that you're supposed to come back to sort of your everyday life and say, my world is like that too, right? This world is alive and, and there's all sorts of, um, grace here in my everyday experience. And that's a good escape, right? Because it's actually helping me to escape from this sort of mechanical, naturalistic, scientistic world that tells me that that all of this is just nuts and bolts, you know, matter and energy, and, and reminding me that the world is charged with the grandeur of God, you know, and that and that you never talk to an ordinary human. You know, that's these are quotes from Jared Manley Hopkins and C.S. Lewis, you know, that it sort of reminds us that uh, that life is truly a tremendous affair. And so that's a good escape, the escape that sort of restores our sanity and, and lets us know, um, yeah, that places us in this big world um, that's that's full of God's glory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does it orient you to your creator to see his beauty and his majesty, right? Or is it? Is it that's right. That's, that's a great, that's yeah. a great distinction. So does it turn you in on yourself um, or does it turn you outward towards God and the world and your neighbor and your family? Does it help you, you know, so like if I'm, you know, reading a novel or something like that and I read it and it's keeping me from actually loving my family. Uh, but it might be that I read the novel and it makes me think, wow, the relationships described here actually makes me think of my my son and and how much I love him and and how I want to spend time with him. you know there, so there's a way in which escaping into that novel is really important for me to actually live more skillfully and faithfully in in the world or looking at a painting or listening to a listening to music or going to a concert all of these things are not just escapes I mean sometimes I think there's probably a place for yeah, for for the other kind of escape, I think there's there's a place for it. Maybe not the bad escapes, but just the sometimes I want to watch a Marvel movie, right? And um and let the special effects sort of, you know, help help me relax. Um, but hopefully that junk food. Well, okay, I don't know. I, I, some people don't think Marvel movies are junk food, but you know, hopefully, um, yeah, like sometimes maybe I want a, a, a shake from a fast food place, but hopefully that's not the steady diet that I'm eating. 
hopefully I'm, I'm consuming solid, you know, more, more healthy food. And so there's maybe a place for me to have a milkshake every once in a while, but that shouldn't be the predominant thing that I'm trying to do when it comes to um, the culture that I'm engaging with or consuming. I don't know if that makes sense at all. No, no, I get what you're saying there. Yeah. And, and to touch back on the question I was going to get to earlier about porn and, and propaganda, they're, they're almost like the fast food versions of aesthetics today in our culture, because it, it relates to this, this naturalistic, this mechanical mindset that you discussed earlier, right? Like we reduce sex to like literally just the very physical act and there's nothing else going on there whatsoever. And then we reduce all communication to just like manipulation and power uh, when we're speaking about propaganda. And at least in my opinion, it seems like that when we do, yeah, it's not completely fair to say we don't produce any good art today because there is some good art being produced today, but it seems like it is mm. few and far in between and that so much of the, the art this culture produces, I say that but living here in the West, so much of our art is just, it's phony, it's fake, it's uh, it's just copies of something we've seen before, but it's not genuine, it's just, it's just a, a poor imitation. Um, and I think because we've lost our way, of course, with our basis with with Christianity. Um, do you agree with that? Have you seen like, did you kind of discover that when you were researching this chapter, this these mm. kind of two two themes of, of porn and propaganda are, are kind of the two main aesthetic pushes yeah. in our culture? Yeah. For first, let me say just my fast food analogy. Um, you shifted it a bit. Like, I, if, if we're saying that porn and propaganda yeah. are the fast food, I don't want a milkshake then you know I, i'm sort of there's i'm tr there's yeah there's this sort of Sorry, like uh, um, yeah. but i think what you're sort of saying is that um not just what we might consider just formally porn or propaganda but there is this is the impulse within our society towards pornography towards propaganda um so that things that we might not consider pornography formally it is pulling towards that right it's that it's that same view of the world that sort of mechanical view of the world and the same thing with propaganda there's one of the people i cite in the book that says that um yeah the difference between true art and porn or propaganda is the generativity right so true art sort of you can keep returning to it and ethnography or propaganda is just trying to do one thing right and it's trying to be very transactional in what it does. It's trying to manipulate, it's trying to control, it's trying to constrain your response. Whereas good art, good music actually opens up uh, the world and all sorts of possibilities. And so I think that that's, um, yeah, that's where because of the power of, so now we're talking about power again, mass media, right? And now the algorithms and all of these things that kind of reproduces itself, right? So that you have a greater number of mediocre or not you know things that again tend towards the propagandic tend towards the pornographic um whether or not they actually are formal examples of propaganda or pornography um it's very unimaginative in, in what it's trying to do it's really just trying to do one thing you know um and so i think that uh yeah because of the explosion of content that we have it's a lot harder to find content that actually is imaginative, that's actually generative. Uh, there's maybe a, a parallel could be drawn to the printing press in the 16th century. Uh, one of the great boons for that was that scripture could be you know, wild, widely printed and things like that. But there were also lots and lots and lots and lots of illicit and, and material that got just that technology reproduced. And I think we're in a similar sort of situation uh, where there's just so much garbage um, that sometimes it can be really hard to sift between it. 
And, um, and then I would say too, I have a, I have a friend who says 90% of everything is garbage. Uh, so find the 10% that's good. Um, and so that requires, yeah, some patience. It requires some intentionality. It requires, I think, a really intentional curation of, of uh, what you read and what you listen to and what you, um, yeah, what you engage with, because there is just so much that is, yeah, just really superficial and trivial. And like I said, there's a, there's a spectrum, right? And there's, there, I have space in my heart for um for some of that trivial and superficial stuff but because culture in general tends towards the pornographic and tends towards the propagandic uh propagandistic um i'm suspicious right and and i want to make sure that that's not a really big part hmm. of 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 my life and that there's other things uh that are more vital that are more connected to history that are more connected to um that have stood the test of time that that's like that's my that's my diet right uh so when it comes to culture and that's that's maybe one answer that to say that i uh do tend even though i teach popular culture here and and try to stay up on as much as i can um my steady diet is not popular culture my steady diet is much more um art and music and and literature that comes out of the the high past, right, which has stood the test of time a bit, and um, is not so locked in the moment of what is happening now. Mm -hmm. You see that this is a theme I've noticed with uh, I'll like speak to musical artists, like they they like the older stuff, like it's usually like quite a ways back, and that inspires yeah. them to make good music nowadays. Like this this ties into this whole um, yeah creating to critique or criticism through creativity. And one of the ways obviously this is done is, is through art and through music. Uh, a guy who's recently done this, uh, you probably have heard of him, maybe you talked about in your class is Oliver Anthony. He has this, this viral song and yeah, it's, it's, a it's a critique. It's certainly a critique. It's a critique of modern culture and, uh, and direction we are trending. And, uh, I listened to a couple of interviews he did. and He talked about, yeah, being inspired by mm -hmm. artists in like the forties, the fifties and the sixties. Um, and not that culture was was perfect by any stretch back then. It never is, but it was certainly different. And there were different values in place, at least back, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, what do you make of, of a song like that? How do you discuss it in your class? And and what is a conversation like around, around a song like mm -hmm. that? And do you think that's a good example of criticizing through creativity? Yeah. So, okay, I'll just start by saying that I haven't, done a lot of research on on i have heard the song and i have read some interviews with him as well but um yeah maybe there's somebody who's who knows more of his music or his perspectives i have been in generally encouraged by um i guess what i would call his um distinctiveness uh the, the desire to not be a part of this sort of massive machine um not be um turned into some sort of yeah we we talk about in my class how you have this sort of hypnotic effect of mass media and then there's always these sort of resistance artists that arise out of it right so you think about uh, rock and roll right as a resistance movement within the system or then hip-hop early hip-hop right and in both cases arguably you have these genres that arose as resistance getting subverted back into the big the big machine right and then it just became a way to get rich right and a way to perpetuate 
you know, um, celebrity and a way to perpetuate, you know, some of the worst things about, <laughs> about um, contemporary culture. And, and so that's what I think I, I'm waiting to see. Um, I'm worried about him because I know how powerful the machine is and how it always is trying to take unique artists and just make them one more subculture piece. You know, they're trying to sort of colonize their music. And, and if he's able to kind of keep his, his footing, perhaps it will be because his roots reach back um, into earlier, earlier things, right? Um, um, or reach down in, into faith, right? Um, but I think that, you know, even with contemporary Christian music, that's, you know, that's the challenge is that perhaps in some ways, most people say, I want to be different. I want to criticize by creating. I want to make my own songs that testify to, to God's kingdom. But it's not long before, because you're part of the system, your songs begin to sound like everybody else's songs and, you know, and you begin to look like everybody else. And it becomes just another consumer product, part of a subculture, rather than something that is legitimately countercultural uh, for the common good. So that's what I would say, you know, about something like that. Um, yeah, we'll see. And, and I, I hope that uh, he has community and has, you know, people that help him stay grounded. Uh, because, yeah, one of the reasons why he's getting attention is because he's a distinctive voice, you know, that isn't easily, you know, um, sorted, right, and, and categorized as much as people are trying to do that. And I'm encouraged by uh, his uh, rejection of this sort of decadence of not not wanting to charge for his concerts, you know, and not wanting to be a part of that. And again, um, I would understand if he got swept up in it, you know, um, because I know how powerful the machine is. But yeah, I, I do think that the existence of artists who are trying to do it differently, um, whether from a place of faith or just from a place of resistance to the to the culture, to the broader sort of dehumanizing, um, you know, materialistic, um, naturalistic, scientistic culture. I'm encouraged by that. And, and, I, and I think that, um, yeah, and I think whether it is, you know, I think some of his songs are really explicitly critical, right? Uh, and one of the points I'm also trying to make is that even if you don't have, you know, even if you're not explicitly like writing songs that are critiquing, you know, governmental systems or financial systems or whatever it is, the very existence of faithful work, you know, or, or you know, um, writing songs that testify to beauty and testify to truth and testify to goodness is criticizing by creating. Right. Um, so I always said, you know, when I was in church ministry, I was in church ministry for a decade. And, you know, there's always this temptation to throw rocks at other at other churches um, and critique what everybody else is doing. And I said, you know, there's maybe a place for that. But our criticism is going to be we're going to criticize by creating. We're going to try to create a community that is faithful and testifies to the gospel. And that's where our energy is going to go. Um rather than defining ourselves over against somebody else who's doing it in a way that we don't think is um, is wise or we don't think is faithful, we're going to intentionally try to create something beautiful. We're going to try to intentionally create something that is faithful um, and and hopeful and gracious. And and that's the criticism, right, um, of, of the way that mm -hmm. things are. Yeah. Yeah, let your actions speak for themselves and, and draw that contrast, right? Yeah, yeah, walk, walk the walk. Okay, well, we've kind of run the gamut here. I know we're up against the clock, so 
I'll give you a, like a couple minutes here. I'll just hit you with a couple of key words about cultivating a posture of curiosity, discernment, and non-anxious presence. Uh, if you could, you could wrap the wrap the book up and give your conclusion on, yeah. on what you learned writing this and the the main message you're hoping. Yeah. To get so across. the the, the postures you just noted, I, I really just my translation of faith and love and hope. Um, you know, which are the um, theological virtues or the virtues that are meant to define us as people of God. Faith, which is that sense of entrusting ourselves to God and having allegiance to God first and foremost, which then allows us to be curious about the world, to ask questions from a place of rootedness, not from a place of just, you know, as, as the apostle writes, where we're kind of tossed to and fro um, by every wind. Um, and so we, we start with a posture of, of trust, and so we have, um, yeah, a, a curiosity that is non-reductive, that doesn't seek to find easy answers and easy categories to categorize people and, to, and, and so that we can control them, but to say that we recognize that the world is really complex. And because of that, we entrust ourselves to God and everybody will entrust themselves to something. Um, but, um, but God alone is, is the one who's worthy of our trust and the only one who can be trusted with our trust. So that's the first one. Um, so it's a curiosity that comes from a place of conviction. The second one is, um, what I call non-dismissive discernment. And so this is from the place of love. So to love does not mean to not tell the truth. And it doesn't mean to, um, you know, anything goes, uh, we still do the work of discernment, asking questions and figuring out the direction and whether something's pulling us away from God or, or, or towards God. Um, but this is always done in a position of not dismissing someone who's made in God's image, uh, even if they dismiss us. Right. Um, and so uh, it's this, I have a mentor who said to me, you know, these other people are not our judge. Jesus is our judge, but we'll let them take the witness stand. Let's listen to what they have to say. Right. Knowing that ultimately Jesus is our judge gives us the confidence to allow other people to take the witness stand. And so they, our discernment is necessary, but it's non-dismissive. And then the third one, non-anxious presence comes from hope. And that's a, um, that's, that's a phrase from Edwin Friedman, who is a Jewish psychiatrist. Um, and this idea of non-anxious hope is a sense of being grounded so that you don't take on the anger or fear of other people. Um, because because your identity is not called into question. Um, so it means you can be in the presence of people who have strong emotions, um, people who are angry, people who are fearful, and you don't absorb that fear. You don't absorb that anger. Now you take it seriously and you, you know, perhaps sympathize with it. Um, you understand it, but their anger doesn't have to become your anger. Their fear doesn't have to become your fear because your non-anxiety, um, your confidence is rooted in a deeper place. And I sort of use the example of, of Jesus, um, who was not reactive in his ministry. He was responsive, certainly, to hurting people, but he was not reactive. He was always guided by the Father's will. So he said, you know, um, I only do the things that please the Father. So that was sort of the, the thing that kept him from sort of, yeah, losing his identity because he has his identity in this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, which he gets at the beginning and 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 in middle of his ministry. So so that's what I'm I'm trying to say with non-anxious presence is, is my hope is um in a time of extreme anxiety and fear and anger, 
Um, and there are things to be angry about and afraid of. And, and, um, and uh, there are things that are confusing and aggravating. But ultimately, um, if our hope is not in ourselves, but in Christ, we can offer up our work with joy uh, because we are not the ones who are responsible for fixing the world. Um, uh, it will not be our sacrifices that heal the world. It was the sacrifice of Christ who that, that did that. And so there's a sense that I'm hoping um, that reading this book or um, having this sort of posture towards culture will in some ways have people who maybe are like this and really tight you know, and anxious about everything that's happening and just sort of feel a bit of, of the weight coming off their shoulders. Um, again, I want them to be responsible and discerning and all of those things. But but I'm hoping that the confidence is not in us figuring it out, but that our confidence is in uh, the fact that we are held in the love of of God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's that's ultimately what I'm hoping that this book will offer. It will offer maybe an alternative to sort of the reactionary, angry, defensive, um, yeah, um, posture that I don't think is ultimately either sustainable or uh, charitable um, when it comes to um, the way that we put together theology and culture. Mm -hmm. Okay, well said. Thank you very much. Um, I hope, yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I hope our listeners found this helpful. I think the book is, if I were to summarize it, I think it, it gives you a helpful lens. There are the five key lenses we talked about, but just in terms of how your daily life, your daily walk with Christ uh, can be enacted in this world and how you can thoughtfully uh, and prayerfully engage with the culture around you. I think uh, the book gives you some tools to do that. It's thought-provoking and uh, and certainly worth the read. And it's been, it's been a great discussion. I think we may have to uh, chop this episode into two parts, given how long we went. So uh, if, if you're listening to this, uh, listeners, then uh, stay tuned for that. But uh, yeah, I think we'll leave it there. It's been it's been real talk here on Real Talk. And until next time, we'll uh, we'll catch you later. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfleur, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time.